I have a, a really serious question. Um, Vanessa and I, Vanessa's not here um, right now. We, we've been in an argument. And I, I don't know if you can guess what this argument is about. Um, but I need, I need my beloved community uh, to help me figure this out. Um, so every, every uh, usually in November, I begin the process of not shaving. Uh, and, and I don't shave at all. And by Christmas Eve, it's this big old red... For some reason, I have red facial hair, uh, and now there's a lot of gray tint to it. Um, and then Christmas Eve, I, I, uh, I shave. And usually I go like straight razor, all the way down, fresh. I look like a shaved cat uh, by the end of that. Um, this year, uh, I have a, have a child. Uh, things were a little bit more chaotic. And it ended up just being me with my razor and just started, uh, you know, just chopping stuff off and then I got to like here and I was like you know what let's just just stop and uh, I'll walk out of the bathroom and I'll look at Vanessa and I'll enjoy seeing her face and her face was about what you probably expect that it would look like and because of that I went I'm gonna leave it and so here we are, uh, and I just wanted to get a consensus. Um, leave it. We got, we got one for leaving it. Anybody else think that I should leave it? Oh, we got a couple. Could you, would you guys, would you guys please just do me a favor? And uh, I want to make sure if this is in my favor, I'm going to take a picture of the amount of hands that are up. Um, how many think I should leave it? It's growing on you. <laughs> ben Taylor. I know Megan Brown already told me that she thinks that I should leave it. All right, how many of you think I should get rid of this thing? Or grow the rest. Or grow the rest. The Leavitts have it. I, that's what they do in Congress, right? Yeah, they, the, the yeas have it. Okay, good. No. That's all. I actually don't know what's going to happen with this. It, it, it's mostly laziness at this point. Um, and the fact that Matt Sager keeps bothering me about it, and that just makes me want to leave it longer. So, uh, <laughs> thanks, brother. I can start talking like that now, right? No? Okay. Um, question. And uh, the, the group at 9 o'clock kind of wrestled with this a little bit, so if you were here... You refrain for a minute. Um, how many species of, uh, whether it's plants or animals, uh, do you think exist in the, the closest acre around you? Whether it's your backyard um, or just the, the village area that you live in, how many species do you think exist in that space? The, this is not me like testing you. Yeah, how many different types of species? Thousands, I heard, the thousands. Some hundreds. 614. Going with the 614, you must have Columbus connections. Any, any, I heard thousands, hundreds, 614. Which was weirdly enough correct. Huh? 
It's, it's got to be upwards of incalculable. All right. So um, as we're coming out of Christmas, uh, we talked about Christmas Eve of what is being conceived in you. Gregory of Nyssa has a, a beautiful quote for this season in which he says, what happened in the body of Mary will happen in all who receive the life of God. And so you will give birth to something just like Mary did. So what's being conceived in you? Will, will that be holy and light? Will it look like Messiah? Will it continue incarnation? Or will you give birth to something else, something that is destructive to Messiah and the image of God? But something is being conceived in, 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 inside of you. And um, I think today, as we're coming out of that, this is the first Sunday of Christmas, and hence the celebratory songs. And as we're now on the other side of Advent, are we actually like Mary, or is that just a nice metaphor? Do we actually embody that, that very physical and existential reality of Mary, or is that just a cool metaphor to get us through Christmas Eve so that we can move on to other things? And the reason that I bring up the amount of species in your backyard, or wherever you live, is that leads to the other question of where are you most likely to find beauty? Where are you most likely to find beauty? Wendell Berry, an agrarian fellow who many of you who know I happen to like, talks about how uh, the, the problem with national parks is that we elevate something that is rare and make it a destination because it becomes beautiful. And we begin to equate rarity with beauty. And he says, but you can spend your entire life exploring the blades of grass in your backyard and you will never fully discover them. There is so much beauty, there is so much complexity just hidden in the plants behind us that you could spend your whole lifetime engaging with that. It's easy to go to a, na a national park and see a geyser or see a really big mountain. It's much more difficult to find beauty in the familiar and in the ordinary. And I do think this has something to say to incarnation because uh, the same way that we create separation and there's only specific places that are beautiful, there's the things that create awe in you, the things that seem really majestic, um, you could use like the, the sunrise and sunset as an example. Do you ever just look up at the sun at midday and go like, man, look at that artwork? No, because it looks ordinary. It's the same blue sky you see all the time. But when you get that beautiful sunset, now we're going to pay attention. The challenge is, can you find the same beauty in the regular, in the ordinary, in, in the thing that doesn't catch our attention quite as much as anything else. The reason I think this is important is I think we do the same separation with holiness. We do the same separation with incarnation. Is that there are destinations, there are specific places and specific people, maybe, with whom we will find the image of God and the work of God happening. Everything else is just ordinary. I think our invitation, though, is to see that the incarnation, if we are actually like Mary, that the incarnation is much deeper and wider and more beautiful than that. And so uh, we're going to look at uh, a text today. Um, we were able to, at 9, have a pretty lengthy discussion, hence why it was still 10 o'clock and some of you were still standing over there. Uh, it went a little longer. 
because um, we've got into some really interesting caveats about this question. So we're, we're going to focus today at, t- at 10 o'clock on the Lamentations part. And Lamentations is primarily asking the question, where is God? And what's beautiful about their uh, question is that they're asking it in the midst of suffering. And so it's much more real. For those of you who have seen suffering and tragedy and difficulty and darkness up close, you, you know that existential emotional response that comes in the midst of that. That's what's going on in Lamentations. Is they're going, where is God in the midst of this thing where it seems like there is no God present? Um, the reason I think that's important for Lamentations is that's a climate where whatever rules you've had, whatever things you were certain about before, they don't necessarily work anymore. And you're having to, to find new answers to things that you, you haven't considered because it, it's been broken. So we're going to focus on that. Um, but what I also wanted to do uh, this morning is, listen, it's about to be the roaring 20s again. Right? We're all going to dress like flappers and do the whole thing, right? Hence that raffish mustache. Ha <laughs> ha! You're catching on. Very good. Uh, no, there's always something. The last time I entered into a, a new decade, uh, I, was, I was in high school, I think. I don't know. What would the last decade have been? 2010? Ah, I was just out of high school. Very good. This is my first new decade as an adult. We'll say that. But there's always something profound about a new year. Even more so when it's like a whole decade is now behind us. And um, as we're going into this next decade, as we're going into the Roaring Twenties, um, we're going to begin studying the book of Acts. And the reason why is because as, uh, as our, our, our church has experienced newness and transformation, as our uh, community in, at large has, and as I kind of look around at, at the people here that are part of the farmhouse, and I'm seeing so much change and movement and growth and transformation. Um, it's our response to Christmas, hopefully, is that it will make us become a certain kind of person and certain kind of people as we go into the next year. That's the why Christmas is at the beginning of the church calendar. It's supposed to set up how you do the rest of it. And so to figure out um, who we ought to be, how we ought to move, the kind of people we're becoming, the kind of world we want to build, we're going to use the book of Acts. And we're calling this a work in progress because you're a work in progress and our community is a work in progress. And our invitation to be a person of faith is to be a work in progress, constantly moving towards that divine beauty you were created for. And the book of Acts is hopefully going to help inform how we do that. But as it's not yet 2020, and this is the last time that we will be together uh, in 2019, I wanted to just offer a space to sit and reflect a little bit and create some vision for where we're also going to be headed. So, just breathe. Um, as we do this, if you are comfortable closing your eyes, um, I definitely recommend it. Um, if you're not comfortable closing your eyes, then... Uh, I would encourage you to just look at one, like find a small thing that you can focus yourself on and uh, 
do that. And if you need to use this space as just, you just need to pray on your own privately, please do. If you just need a space like you haven't taken a deep breath in a week because you've been running to 19 different Christmas celebrations and uh, you've been trying to take care of a million different things or you just had new children and they, I, I can feel the, I, I know what that's like. Maybe you just need to take a couple deep breaths today. Um, but what I want to invite us to do is uh, a meditation that we do every now and then, except I want to do it backwards today. Um, usually we start by saying this meditation to ourselves. And we end with saying it to the whole world. Today I want to begin in the spirit of Christmas, of of wishing these things upon the world, that Christmas has happened. And then working backwards to ourselves. And as we do, my hope is that you will find something come into focus in your mind and in your heart of the kind of person you want to be for yourself as you move into a new year and a new decade. So whether your eyes are closed or open, I want you to somehow imagine the entire world is before you. Maybe it's just that you're picturing a mass of people or you're just picturing that, that beautiful globe that we call home. And all of the plants, all of the 614 species, all of all of the animals, all, all of the, the materials that make up our home and all of the people, the people that you don't like, the people that you think are crazy, the people that you just don't know how they make it and, and how anybody is friends with them, the, and the people that you think are beautiful, all smashed together. And just say to them, may you be whole, may you be safe, may you have joy, and may you have peace. So with that image in your head, whether you want to say it out loud or you just need to think it internally, wish this upon the whole world. May you be whole. May you be safe. May you have joy. May you have peace. Now I want you to Pick out somebody in that group that you do not like. Maybe this is somebody you hate. Maybe this is somebody that you have a lot of difficulty with. Maybe this is somebody that hurt you. And I am not asking you to let any of that junk go. You don't have to do that right now. But when we are told to pray for our enemies... There's something powerful where you can say, I still don't like you, but I do wish these things upon you. You can still be whole. You can still be safe. You can still have joy. You can still have peace. And so can you do the hard thing? Imagine that person standing right in front of you. Imagine that person's right here. And and do the difficult thing of still, as they also are entering a new year, as they are also entering the possibility of changing and growing and becoming something different. That maybe it will be your love that could help catalyze them into a different trajectory. And so speak to them. May you be whole. May you be safe. 
May you have joy. May you have peace. Now I want you to imagine somebody before you that you love. Maybe it's somebody who over this past year you've lost. Maybe it's somebody sitting right next to you. Uh, maybe it's a relative that you haven't seen in a while. Maybe, uh, maybe it's somebody that you don't really know that much, but you, you've seen a glimpse of their life and their soul and you just think there's something beautiful there. And with that person now in your mind before you, wish this upon their life as well. May you be whole. May you be safe. May you have joy. May you have peace. And now I want you to imagine you are looking into a mirror and you see yourself and you see all of your failures you see all of your inequities you see all the things that you wish you could just change all the things you don't like about your body all the things you don't like about the decisions you've made all the things in your past you wish you can change and it's all there right in front of you and as you look into that mirror your invitation is can you see yourself the same way God does. As you reflect on a year of which there might have been beautiful moments, of which there might have been tragedy, of which there might have been poor decisions, of which there might have been immense growth, look at yourself. And do the hard thing of loving yourself. For if you are to love God and if you are to love your neighbor, it will begin by loving you. And it's not doesn't mean you have to be okay with you. It doesn't mean you don't have room to go. It means you've got to start with going, I'm good and I can continue to move forward in the world. I am a work in progress. And so say to yourself now, if you dare, may I be whole. May I be safe. May I have joy. May I have peace. Our invitation today is to see that often the mirror that we look into is showing us something not just human, but also something divine. Do you believe that God is with you, even you? And if you do believe that, do you understand what that means? Do you understand the responsibility that comes with such a task, such an identity? The question before us today is, where do you find God do you find God only in the special, unique, monumental moments, or is God to be found everywhere? There's a quote by Gandhi that says, it's not the sacred and secular, it's the sacred in all the places we fail to say, see as sacred. Our invitation today is to see that no matter where we look, no matter who we look at, 
no matter the smallness or the greatness of the life before us, that you are looking into a mirror of the divine. And can you see what is holy and beautiful even in places that seem ordinary and mundane? Because God is there, even there. If you would like to stay in a spirit and posture of prayer and meditation, you are welcome to. Um, but Noah is going to play a song for us that might further invite us into this reality that we're exploring today. So. Okay, I just want to explore a couple of things to help solidify this, to help us uh, have some theological frameworks for understanding this, this reality that we just kind of walk through. And I do think this is important. One, coming out of Christmas and asking the question, does incarnation matter? We've been saying throughout Advent, what good is it if Jesus came 2,000 years ago if Jesus doesn't continue to come today? And so if incarnation, if Christmas is not static and incarnation is this process that's continuing to unfold in the world, what does that mean for us? Especially as we move into what we civically call a new year. Um, how do we start out well? How, how do we start out in a meaningful way that shapes us? So let's start with um, uh, the book of Lamentations. Do I have um, that, that line there? Yeah. Now, this is also something that we read during Advent in a little bit of a different angle. Um, but this is, Lamentations is only five chapters. It's relatively short. Um, it's a book that most modern Christians either have never heard of before. Um, it's also just not one that gets read a lot. And the reason is it's because it's really stinking dark. Um, it's not one that's very positive and encouraging and uplifting. Um, yet it's still part of the text. And so uh, what can we learn from it? There's some really beautiful details about the text itself and um, how it's arranged. So it's uh, arranged as an acrostic. Is that what that's called, Amy? Okay, uh, an acrostic. So in Hebrew, Aleph, Betz, like the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, it's the first stanza starts with an Aleph. The second one starts with a Bet, and then it continues to go there. Um, I, my interpretation on that is that it's very structured and ordered about a bunch of content that's absolute chaos. And, and there's this tension and like the, the, the writing is in this beautiful structure and yet this is about absolute mass chaos. Um, another thing is that psalms of lament or songs of lament are not anything new. The Jewish people did not come up with them. Um, the Mesopotamian cultures had them. The Assyrian cultures had them. The Egyptian cultures had them. What's different is how Israel uses them. Everybody had songs of lament. What's different is what they're doing with it. And I think what's different about lamentations for us is that question, where is God? And so just a couple of examples. This is what most of the book is like. The city weeps bitterly at night with tears on her cheeks and no one to comfort her. So that's actually the first character. It's uh, portrayed as a woman. We're told that's the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, the daughter of Israel. That's a personified character that you get all throughout the text. And it's usually meant as a way to capture the whole of Israel, the daughter of Zion. And so the city, this woman, the city Jerusalem is weeping and there's no one to comfort her. Uh, later, I think this one 
No, I think this is also the same character in chapter 1. Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Okay, so that's just an example of kind of what we're reading here. There's another part where another character... So there's three characters within Lamentations. Um, um, and the, another character says, God has made me grind my teeth on gravel. All right, so I know that's a, that's a phrase that you all use often. Um, and so just know that that's also in there. Okay, just you get the climate of Lamentations a little bit. The question that is contrasted with this in the text is how does God show up? And uh, we came up with a pretty good list at 9 o'clock. And uh, one of the questions there is, how often does God, like in, in God's full divine manifestation in space and time, how often does that happen? And uh, the technical answer, in my perspective, is zero. One time that we could come up with where it kind of happens, but nobody sees it, is the, when, when Moses hides in the rock face. And God says, I'm going to pass by, but we're going to have to cover you because you can't actually see me. Um, so, like, the fullness of the divine showing up doesn't really happen. I think this is important theologically because in a world full of lots of deities that can be contained within a statue, the Jews are saying this one cannot be contained. In fact, you cannot even fully see this, this divine being because it's, like, so transcendent. It allows God to be transcendent. What are other ways that God shows up? Um, Large cataclysmic events, flood, could use as an example. Um, what were some other ones that were coming up? Uh, you guys were here, do you remember? Uh, burning bush, cataclysmic, uh, uh, nature, so fire, clouds, yep, uh, stuff like that. Animals, there is a talking donkey, right? Don't forget about that. Uh, and then, and then uh, various people. The temple is for the Jews where God most shows up. So you go through the process and there's an official priest and that's how you come across the divine. Um, mostly though in the text, God shows up through people. And there's the prophets. Uh, and it's never the official prophets of the, the structure. It's always like the people who are from like the backwoods, like crawled out of nowhere and are wearing really weird clothes and they smell bad, those kind of prophets. Um, you get these unexpected heroes like David, like Moses, um, the people who they're not necessarily on top. You wouldn't have thought they'd have anything special and yet they show up and they, God is present within the work that they unfold. Um, you get, uh, you, Amy, you had brought up the, uh, the, the maidservants and, and the slave women in Exodus chapter 2, which was a good example. Um, you also get a story about Melchizedek, Melchizedek uh, which is a really strange story in Genesis of this king, but we're not sure where he's a king. He's the king of righteousness and peace, and yet he shows up and blesses Abraham, which is strange because Abraham's supposed to be the one doing the blessing, and Melchizedek shows up. You also get a story about Jethro, who's a pagan priest from Midian, and he's the one who actually sets up Israel's governmental structure for the entire nation. How does God show up? Mostly people and often through people in very strange ways that we don't necessarily expect. Um, and so here's one of the challenges I think is before us. Go to the next text. This is from Genesis 28. 
There's a story about Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. And Jacob is running for his life from his brother Esau. And he ends up in a certain place in the middle of nowhere. It's so unimportant that the author doesn't even tell us where he is. And Jacob has a dream. He's got his head on a rock as a pillow, sleeping on the land. And he has this dream where God basically says that what started with your forefathers is going to continue through you. It's a profound sort of dream. And then Jacob wakes up. And this is what he says. Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And when we talk about incarnation, I think that's the challenge that's before us. If God is concerned about all things, if the blade of grass in your yard has as much beauty and power as Yellowstone National Park, if all things matter, if it's not sacred and secular, it's sacred in all the places you fail to see as sacred, do we have some waking up to do? Because the powerful thing about Jacob's statement is not him going, and then God showed up. See, it was just a certain place, and then I had this dream, and now God is here. But it wasn't before. It says, God's been here the whole time, and I didn't realize it, but now I do. God's disposition doesn't change in that. The human's does. And our invitation, I think, is to wake up in the same way. And I think this is the same thing that's happening in Lamentations. And so this is in the midst of suffering. Okay, This is in the midst of them uh, crying out. They can't find God. They're throwing their fists up into the air. They're, They're yelling. They're upset. They're emotionally portraying this existential crisis about their faith and their identity within the world at that point in history. But something happens. So I told you, there's three characters, right? You, you get the woman, there's one who's more of a warrior type and one who's uh, more of a like, wise elder kind of type. And as the book of Lamentations begins, these characters are all separate, right? So the woman speaks for a while. And then a scene change happens. And then we come over to this character. And then a scene change happens. And we come over to this character. And they're all separate. And the woman's saying things like, has anybody seen the suffering like my suffering? I'm all alone. I weep at night. Everything is desolate. Everything is broken. Everything is gone. But then, as the book continues, we start seeing that instead of distinct scenes for each character, the characters are slowly starting to come together. And this is all happening within the midst of, of the question, where is God here? Where is God within the midst of this? And so these three voices, as they come closer, go to the, oh, you're already here. Has anyone seen suffering like my suffering? So that's sitting there. And then what happens is... Like, it's like that character was over there, and then you had this character that was over here. But as they come moving closer to each other, they get here, and then go to the next one. And then one of the other characters says something along the lines of, I too have seen this suffering. So where they thought they were alone, now they come together, and they find the very solidarity, the very thing that they were looking for. And where do they find it? 
in each other. I think the question that Lamentations asks is fair. Where is God? We want the answer to be that God all of a sudden showed up and fixed everything in Jerusalem. We want the answer to be that God did, was absent, and God was up there causing all of this destruction. And what we find is a different kind of answer. It's the character saying to each other, where is God? God is right here. Right exactly here in the experience we are having with one another. In that moment, they are God to each other. What makes this lamentation different from all of the other cultures around them? This God shows up and is present in the most unordinary, unexpected ways. And they just have to find it. This God is not one that just stays out there. This God is one that is in the midst of things all the time. See, I find it powerful about lamentations because their suffering brings them together. And those of you who have suffered or you've gone through suffering with somebody, what happens? That is now a mark on your story that both of you share. And that's what happens to these characters in Lamentations. And what they find out is that, is that, is that, that, that the presence of God was there the whole time. The trick is that the presence of, this God, of God was disguised. And how was it disguised? And people like you, and in people like me. See, sometimes there's just one another, and that's all the divine you get. And you might want that big cataclysmic bombastic moment of Mount Sinai, and sometimes you only get you, but God's still there. Sometimes there's just Jethro. Sometimes that's all the divine you get. And the thing's not, how does God show up here? It's, how do you wake up to it here? Um, so when uh, my second child was born, Torin, the wild one with blonde hair and blue eyes, that doesn't look like either of us. When he was born, uh, so, so most of you know about Landon's birth story. It was unexpected. It happened the same day we found out we were pregnant. Okay? A rather easy Pregnancy, okay? Now, Torrens was different. Torrens was more normal. <clears throat> Torrens was also difficult for Vanessa. Uh, she had a tear in her placenta. Um, there was a lot of problems that came up during the course of time. Um, but then we got to the actual labor. And it started when we were, we were right over there in the house. And um, I, I don't mean to like nullify the first one, Vanessa hadn't really experienced labor before. Because the first time, she just thought it was back pain and that she was going to die, but she didn't know that it was labor. So here she is and she knows it's, it's labor. And um, I'm in that moment, those of you who have, whose, whose spouse has given birth to a child, you know just how helpless the male species is. You don't know what to do. It's like, I, I wish I could... Uh, take on some of this pain for you? No, that's not possible. What the heck am I supposed to do in the midst of this? And you just start asking, like, can I go get you something? Do you need something to eat? Do you need some water? Uh, can I change the temperature in the house? How about a nice book? Would you like that? And all of the answers are just like, stop asking me questions. And so that's what's happening with Vanessa and I. 
And I'm asking all these questions, and I'm trying to help, and I'm trying to be the supportive uh, husband in the midst of something that I can't even imagine how terrible that is. And the only thing that Vanessa wanted, and maybe you can guess it, she said one thing to me, and I think it speaks to the power of our presence. So I'm going, can I get you something to eat? What, do you want me to go do something? Else? Can I clean the house for you? What, what would make this better? And she says, just stay here with me. Just stay here with me. That's the only thing that she needed. Why? And the reason I think that's what we so often yearn, that's the thing we so often need from each other. Is because there's something powerful about our presence. And there's something powerful about our presence because there's something divine about our presence. Like people get into this debate. I hate the debate of whether or not God is real. I don't care about watching the documentaries. I don't care about the movies they come out with. I don't care about arguing with supposed atheists on is God real and do we have all the philosophical, cosmological things. I don't care about any of that. Because for me, the only thing I have to know Is God real? Have you suffered with somebody? Have you experienced somebody's generous presence in the midst of hell? At that moment, you can be quite sure there's something transcendent here. There's something divine here. You have to understand about yourself. If you are like Mary... If you are conceiving something holy, even in your unordinary, unexpected, mundane, you're a very regular, average person, fine. Never underestimate the power of your presence. You can think lowly about you all you want, fine. But there is something transcendent about you because you're alive and you're breathing and from your first breath, God has said, I am with you. Therefore, never underestimate the power of your presence presence. Because in times where you find yourself going, where is God? What needs to happen here? How will the, ever, the world ever be made right? How are we going to deal with all of this junk that surrounds us every day? You can find the answer of going, we just need to be here, right exactly here, because that is where God will be found, and that's how God always works in the world. God always works through the people who are called nothing and the places that are called nowhere. Those who are the least expected. That's how it always happens. And so if you find yourself going like, I am nothing, welcome to the club. You've got work to do. And so with, in the context of incarnation, we have to see that the primary form that this movement is going to manifest through is through ordinary humans like us. Like if you ever think that Metamora is something akin to Nazareth, that's a good thing because that's where it all starts. Or you think about the, the Matthew 25. And uh, that's often made to like, what do we do about heaven and hell and there's the goats and the sheep? What's Matthew 25 about? Have you noticed? There's a mystery to God's presence where even in the least of these, who is with them? Jesus, incarnation, it's there, and you want to find it, you're going to find it in each other. How does God show up? Often through people, 
and often through the people that you least expect. There's a reason that after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the temple is said to be us. Y'all, and it doesn't say you are a temple, so don't get tattoos and any of that stuff. You can still think that way, it's fine. Tattoos could be bad, but that's a different argument. The the point is, uh, y'all together are the new temple, which is what happens in the temple? It's where you find God. Like I imagine this happening, like in the first century of, of one of the first Christians like finds this, runs into a, a pagan friend and uh, they're like, oh yeah, so the Jesus thing, cool, cool. Hey, what's, how, how do I see your God? Like I can just go over to my temple and there's a nice little statue, really well done with marble, great sculptor, it's going to be made famous one day. And that's how you can see uh, my deity. Uh, how do I see yours? And I can just imagine that person standing there like, you're looking at him? Me? Like, how, how are we going? How does, why does Paul say that we're the body of Christ? Yes, to have unity. Yes, to have all that stuff. But also because the way that incarnation continues in the world is through us. And what I also think is important about this is that if the divine often comes via disguise, that you are the best disguise. And there's a line in Exodus 4 where Moses is railing against God, saying like, can't be me, you can't have me go do this thing. I'm not a very good speaker, I've got all these problems, it's a long ways away. And Moses is looking for a way to qualify why he should even do this work of Exodus. And do you know what God's answer is? In Exodus chapter 4, God says, for I am with you. And that's it. God doesn't give him qualifications of why Moses is the right one. God just says, for I'm with you. That's all the need you have there. That's all that needs to be said. And so the first thing I think is important Do you see the divine in other people, even the people you hate? You don't have to like them. It's fine. Do you see the divine in them? Are you one day going to have to be like Jacob and say, yeah, God was with this person the whole time and I wasn't aware of it? Second, do you understand that the way God works in the world is often very ordinary? And if you are looking for holiness and beauty in only specific places, you're missing something. And can you see that the divine is in all of these places, even if you're not aware of it? And the third thing is that midwiving the divine into the world, the thing that we just celebrated on Tuesday and into Christmas, it's going to begin through you. Listen, guys, you don't have to like yourself to understand that God's with you. You do have to love yourself enough to say that there's something profound and transcendent that exists within me that gives me my very life and breath, and therefore I must use it well. Never underestimate the power of your presence. Never underestimate the power of your presence because incarnation will begin right here. 
right exactly here with each and every one of you. May you be like Jacob. And may you wake up and be aware of the divine presence that's always happening. Amen? Okay, let's reflect on this chorus and song one more time. I saw the outline of my maker dancing backlit by the rays of your incandescent light. I saw the figure of my father's shadow dancing by the flames of your electric desire. I saw God. some kind of sacred spirit are gonna show to me a God with my own face oh are you some kind of magic mirror gonna show to me a God in time and space oh I saw the outline of my maker dancing backlit by the rays of your incandescent light I saw the figure of my father's shadow dancing By the flames of your electric desire I saw God I hope you have all had a Merry Christmas, and I wish you the best as you enter into our generation's version of the Roaring Twenties. May you have a Happy New Year. I am looking forward to exploring what it means to be this work in progress with you all, and I can't wait to see the kind of people we become over the next year. So may this incarnation be with you, and may this grace and this peace be with you. Well,